Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Bone Talk. My name is Clara Gill. I'm the CEO of the National Osteoporosis Foundation. And with me today is Grace Whiting. At 32, Grace was named the President CEO of the National Alliance for Caregiving after previous stints as the COO and Director of Strategic Partnerships. In her work at NAC, Grace led the nation's first national policy study of 1,400-plus rare disease caregivers with global genes. She has supported two nationally representative studies on caregiving, Caregiving in the U.S. 2020, which was just released this past May with AARP, and the previous version in 2015. She has led new policy research on families managing cancer, autoimmune disorders such as IBD, dementia, mental illness, and chronic disease. She has provided testimony to Congress on caregiving programs and provided policy analysis to national media outlets such as C-SPAN's Washington Journal, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. In addition to her role at NAC, Grace represents NAC and the United States on the governing board of the International Alliance for Carer Organizations and offers ex officio support for NAC's role as secretariat. Thanks so much for joining me today, Grace. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I'm really delighted to talk about this topic. Obviously, your organization and the National Osteoporosis Foundation have a lot of our population in common, people who are taking care of loved ones who are suffering from chronic disease. And I'm really surprised at much like the number of people with bone loss and osteoporosis in the U.S., kind of surprised at the numbers about 53 million Americans caring for a friend or family member with a disability or healthcare need. I'm sure that with COVID, it's shown that we are woefully unprepared to support people who are doing family caregiving activities and being able to manage that in a pandemic like this. So as the COVID has affected everybody, it's particularly difficult, I would imagine, in the caregiving area. So we'd love to talk a little bit about what the immediate impact has been. Obviously, we're not through this yet, but what you've noticed is some of the immediate impact or changes for caregivers since the pandemic began. Well, it's a really interesting question. You know, our study with AARP, like you said, estimates roughly one out of five Americans are caring for someone, whether that's a friend or a family member or a neighbor. And we started from that position because the study was fielded actually in 2019 before the pandemic really took off. And so we were sitting around saying, well, what do we think has changed since the pandemic? And in exploring that with our stakeholders, What's fascinating is that for some people, they say life has gotten a little bit easier because their employers are aware of what they're going through in terms of caregiving. They have more attention and support. But in general, I would say, I don't know that life is easier, but it's definitely that the pandemic has exposed what so many family caregivers were dealing with. And we know that If you're living in the same household with someone, you're more likely to say that you feel lonely or isolated. 
And that's gotten mm-hmm. much more challenging in the pandemic. The other big area is just gatekeeping. You know, people not being allowed to accompany the person they're caring for to a medical facility or to participate in shared decision making. Yeah, those are things, like you said, I wouldn't have even, you know, really thought about as we go into what happens with the family situation when you can't get to the family person that you've been caring for. Or again, you know, a little bit more of time at home with it. There's also obviously what I think is probably always been around, but has been a little bit more prevalent is that sandwich generation of people who are both caring for a loved one, an elderly loved one or an adult, and then also raising children. I keep saying my sister and brother-in-law are saints. My mom lived with them for the last 15 years of her life and they were raising a child. That's a lot. And I would imagine the same for others in your network that this is happening and they're both trying to homeschool and do caregiving. One of my favorite conversations I had one time with a caregiver was they said, I don't feel like I'm sandwiched. I feel like I'm a panini caregiver. <laughs> so I'm really, <laughs> I'm really being squeezed. Oh. <laughs> I think that's a good analogy. One of the things that came out in this new research was if we just look at people who are taking care of adults, so that's the vast majority of people, so 48 million. And inside of that 48 million, Three and a half million households said that there's a child in the home who's helping to provide care. And what that tells us is that caregiving is really something that impacts the whole family. And something that's not captured in our study, but you see in other research is it has a lifelong impact on how you interact as a family. So the people in the family who are well might neglect their own health because they put so much focus on the person who needs help. It may sometimes cause tension between different family members, could strain people's marriages, or sometimes you'll see siblings that grow up and they'll say, well, I don't want to be responsible anymore for this, you know, so I'm going to go in a different direction. I think that is particularly challenging. Plus, the COVID-19 legislation, it helps if somebody is caring for someone with COVID, but if you're caring for someone who normally would go to a senior center and give you a break during the day, and you would normally be in an office, but now you're at home and the senior center's closed, you don't get any workplace protections under the COVID-19 legislation. So there are a lot of new challenges like that where families are trying to piece together. How are we going to make this work? Yeah. And as we said, we're doing it on the fly, right? There's really nothing for us to look back to under recently to say how people have managed this before, you know? So everyone's sort of doing the best they can with the current situation and then sort of hoping that we all come up with some solutions that make it better as long as this continues. The pandemic, I think, is really a roadmap, though, for what may happen in the future, because you're right, this isn't something we've been through before, at least not in any recent generation. But when we look at just the trends of, you know, access to care, one of the things that we saw, at least when it comes to caregivers, is compared to five years ago, families have much more difficulty coordinating care. And that surprised me because we went from having the Affordable Care Act roll out and all of this effort to make care more seamless across these different settings. And yet here we are in 2020 and understanding that there's been a lot of revisions and modifications to the ACA, it still surprised me to see that with all the technology at our fingertips, all the ongoing national conversation about healthcare the people are still finding it really hard to coordinate care and harder than it seemed five years ago. The other big thing, as crazy as this is going to sound, is when we look at some of the climate issues that have come up in recent years, older adults tend to be impacted 
disproportionately. So I think there are other types of emergency situations, whether it's a pandemic or a wildfire, where understanding like how to navigate care in an emergency is going to be really important. So this is really a test case for that. Yeah, there's so much to consider. And there's so much to consider just under normal circumstances, right? So let's talk about what are some of those variables that influence caregiving situations that, you know, either people are experiencing or that they might have neighbors and, and friends that are experiencing and coworkers experiencing that we need to be aware of to see how we can maybe step in and help. So there's kind of four buckets. You have companionship and emotional support, you know, just sit and be present with someone. You have what I think of as care coordination activities, sometimes called instrumental activities of daily living. But this would be things like grocery shopping and managing finances. And then you have those real high touch activities that we kind of think of as traditional caregiving, which would be like, I'm helping someone move from bed to sit down in a chair, or I'm helping someone bathe or get dressed. And then many families are taking on medical or nursing tasks. So things like wound care or managing objections or other activities that traditionally would have been done by a home care assistant or nurse who's visiting in the home. And what we know from our data and from others, such as the great work AARP is doing, is that when people are doing these medical nursing tasks, they tend to do them without any prior instruction. And so there's just this whole push where we ask families to take on more and more, and yet we don't always provide them with the support that they need to really take on those kind of activities, particularly at home and in the community. That's so true. When we find that, you know, too, even in the osteoporosis field, particularly obviously around that more medical side of caregiving about managing, you know, not only patient appointments, which now either can't be done or need to be done virtually and the caregiver needs to set that up, but also that administration of medication, which as you said, it might have been done by a nurse practitioner or a home health aide and those people aren't available during this crisis. So, That's another thing that families and caregivers need to kind of take on and how to help them do that. And as you said, you know, just the instruction, particularly for things like injections, which it's not something easy that people do. You know, you do need training on it and being able to have the resources available to support people when they have to take that on is so important. And as you said, I'm not sure that we're doing such a great job of that at this moment. You know, what you're finding, particularly about, again, people who are isolated and maybe can't reach the person that they're caring for or that person that's caring for them can't reach them. What are some of the other new issues that have been raised during this pandemic that affect those kinds of relationships? So when we look at our data, we know that people who feel alone were more likely to live with the person they're caring for and they were more likely to use social media, which I just found kind of fascinating. I think What also surprised us is when you look at where people actually go to get information about healthcare and about caregiving, they want to talk to physicians and doctors and other professionals first. And social media is kind of down on the list, which made me feel a little bit better because there's a lot of misinformation on social media. And it's hard sometimes to figure out if something you're reading is trustworthy or to access, you know, things that might be government websites, but seem kind of boring. But, you know, learning to navigate all of that's a really difficult position. I think one of the things when it comes to emotional support that's been really hard for families is right now, almost all of the support services are being offered virtually or by telephone. So it's better than nothing. 
but it doesn't replace that in-person connection. And I think one of the things that's so hard for families and the reason why they're not social distancing when really they probably should be is they see an older relative or someone in their life and they miss them and they naturally want to be with them. They want to give them a hug or kiss on the cheek or help grandma do her hair. But the problem is, is that many, many times people and families can accidentally be someone who's bringing with them the virus and they maybe aren't aware that they have it or they're pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. So I think that creates a lot of new emotional challenges. There's also sort of this sense of grief. And this is collective, the sense of grief that what could our life have looked like without this pandemic? And caregivers always have some piece of grief, typically when they're caring for someone where they're sort of wrestling with, I want to be here with this person, but I'm also sad that they have this condition and that they maybe can't do all the things they want to do. And I'm sad or angry about the way that it impacts my life. And pandemic just adds like a whole new level of uncertainty on top of that. I think of it as sort of lowering the boom. If you weren't really sure what was happening before, I think it is really challenging for caregivers and it's hard for them to take a break, especially if they live together and everything's closed and you can't really go anywhere. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the positives because again, you know, there's obviously tons of challenges out there and caregiving is not an easy task under any circumstance, never mind a pandemic. But do you all have data or some even just information about attitudes and reactions of caregivers? Because I've heard that Many people who do take on the responsibility of caregiving get a lot of reward from it as well. There's a personal commitment. They feel a sense of accomplishment and that they are happy to be of service to this person. Do you have some of that kind of information, data that puts it in a little bit of a positive light? Yeah, absolutely. Claire, I love this question because sometimes the way that we and the policy community talk about caregiving we make it sound like such a pain in the neck. And the natural question is, if it's so terrible, why would anybody do it? And of course, the truth is that it's not all bad all the time. And one of the questions that we asked in our study was about those positive experiences. And just about half the caregivers said that they felt that caregiving brought a sense of meaning and purpose into their life. There's been studies done at Johns Hopkins that found that caregivers are sometimes more resilient and they live longer than their peers. And that was very controversial when it came out six or seven years ago. But I think the idea holds true that you do meet people who have been caregiving and it has enabled them to live their values and to honor people in their life and really translate love into a very pragmatic, action-oriented activity. And that allows people to build resilience and to weather trauma in new ways. So I do think that caregiving can be a really enriching, important experience. And it's part of the fabric of everyone's life. But it also requires a government and a private sector that recognize that just because it's unpaid work doesn't mean it comes without cost. And in order to allow people to have that meaningful experience of caregiving. They also need training and support. They need workplace accommodations. They need the ability to maintain some of their own identity and not get completely engulfed by the caregiving role. That's so important. I agree wholeheartedly about that. 
one, I love that you said that it's part of like the fabric of our lives. And it really is, right? That this has to be done. It has been done for generations. But we need to recognize and support people who are doing that on a regular basis, as well as during this pandemic. So can you talk about some of the resources that you recommend caregivers might try during the pandemic? Probably they're good during all times, but anything specifically too that you might consider recommending to people now that would be useful? My top resource would be the CDC website on COVID-19. That's definitely the first place to start because they've got a lot of information about how to care for someone if you live together and what to do if someone you're caring for is in a facility or an institution. The next place I would say is under some of the COVID legislation, one of the good pieces of news is that Congress infused more money into the Older Americans Act, which don't get tripped up on the name, but that's the act that the National Family Caregiver Support program sits under. So if you're caring for someone 18 or older that has disabilities, or you're caring for an older adult, you can get caregiver support through that program. And it varies by state and community, but there's actually a website called the Elder Care Locator, and you can search by zip code and see what types of caregiver supports might be available to you. So that's, I think, the second place to go. And the third is the healthcare system that your loved one is in, is to talk with them to make sure that they recognize and acknowledge that you are in a caregiving role and ask them what supports they might have for you, whether it's respite or support care or, you know, including you in the electronic health records so that you know what's going on. But that can be a really powerful tool to remove some of that administrative burden of caregiving and also to provide, in many ways, value back to the healthcare system because you're able to provide insight that a doctor or a nurse or therapist, they're never going to see. They're never going to see how people actually live day to day. And that's incredibly valuable insight that caregivers have that no one else really can offer. Those are fantastic resources. And I'll make sure that we include these when we post this podcast so that people have links to it, as well as links to your organization and the programs and services that you all are working on. And I think it would be fantastic if we could share the full survey results that you referenced during this talk, because I think many people would find that incredibly useful. And just really thank you for taking the lead on doing these important research work and finding out from caregivers, what is missing? What are the gaps that we need to fill in? And then helping the rest of us figure out how we can support that, as you said, either through policy initiatives or even and the specific programs in our local communities type thing. Anything that you can suggest that we do to support caregivers that we know in our lives? Is there anything that's come up in surveys that they've said it's most useful when people do X, Y, and Z? I feel it's a little bit like when people are grieving and, you know, what do you say? How do you help? Oftentimes, those of us who are not the primary caregiver, but are within the family, struggle with how can we be of service to the caregiver if they're taking kind of the major responsibility. You know, as as I referenced, that's very much how it was in my family where my sister took the primary care role. And then I was often, what could I do for her other than asking her and, you know, doing that. But any suggestions you have from your experience with the surveys? I'm smiling because I can already tell I've not been a caregiver before. I can tell between me and my husband that he would be the caregiver because I feel like 
something about having been to law school, you know, you come out this like hardened person. <laughs> and I'm always <laughs> the one that's like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So I could tell I would be a terrible caregiver. And I think about this question a lot, you know, like, how do we take care of the caregivers? And you're not hardened, Grace, you are pragmatic. That's right. what you are. <laughs> that's right. So I think one thing is advocating for caregivers. Caregivers, oftentimes, they don't have time to call their congressman or call their governor or call the health insurance company and find out like why they're being excluded or why there's no support for them. And it's almost like they have these very selfless blinders on where they're so focused on the person they're caring for, they forget that they have their own needs. So I think this is where those of us who care for caregivers can be really helpful. And not just asking, how can I help? Because when you ask someone, how can I help? You're sort of putting the onus on them to sit back and identify and say, right. oh, okay. That's right. But to say, what's specific? You know, how can I help? Here are some ideas. I could do grocery shopping. I could help you manage the bills. I know people that work in health insurance, you know, those kinds of things. I think the second piece of that is just recognizing that just the act of listening without trying to fix anything can be a gift, both for the caregiver who's processing a lot and also for the person who's trying to manage their condition. The last thing I would say, and this is going to sound super nerdy, but one of the challenges that we see and we've been talking about, especially since there's been so much movement around racial equity issues, is having data about diverse populations. And I was on a call and it was on Juneteenth and we were talking about personalized medicine and a couple of black women on the call who were patient advocates were like, when are we going to have a real conversation about clinical trials and about how we build trust with communities to get them to engage? And you could see like all these feathers start to ruffle. And I was kind of sitting back like, interesting, (laughs) you know? They're getting so defensive, you know, like, oh, of course, like we want to accommodate people. But yet when we look at like COVID-19, for example, and we know that Latino communities and Black communities are disproportionately affected and families disproportionately affected, most states still aren't even reporting data by race and ethnicity. So it's something that I think encouraging caregivers to participate in research, encouraging particularly caregivers in communities of color to get connected in with patient advocacy groups and other scientific initiatives. I think that's really, really important because just the whole view of what it means to care for someone changes so dramatically from geographic location and community. And we need to capture that diversity. That's right. And there's a lot to learn from the different ways that different communities do caregiving and do, you know, health issues kind of stuff too. That is a great point. It's something that we have to do better of across the whole healthcare landscape. Obviously, as you said, this is something that's become a hot topic. And what I hope that happens is that we do reach out and make an effort to get this information from all communities that we can put it into action and not just talk about it, but actually do more make a difference in the healthcare and the caregiving lives of all Americans. So thank you so much, Grace, really, for sharing your knowledge and your insights. And I just love talking to you about this important topic. And again, I'm so impressed with you and the work that you all are doing to support family caregivers in all circumstances, not just during COVID-19. And as I mentioned, we'll definitely have links to resources that you've mentioned during this talk as well as any resources that we have, particularly for the bone health community, obviously, 
We do have some information and resources available for those who are caring for people with osteoporosis or who are dealing with patients with fractures. So we'll be sure to give those as well. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode of Bone Talk as much as I enjoyed talking with Grace about it. And if you did enjoy this episode, please do two things. One, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share this with all your family and friends. Again, I think this fantastic information that applies to so many people within our communities and families. And we'd really like to make sure that they get information. So thanks very much. Thanks for joining us, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.